Hey folks, my name is Andy Sido. I'm a singer-songwriter, artist, producer, and whatever else I gotta do to make it work living in Nashville, Tennessee. My guest this week is keyboardist, vocalist, and uh, longtime performer Bill McKay. Hey folks, hope all is well. Set up in the new home studio here in Nashville, as I have been for the last few episodes. I moved from Denver back in July, and uh, Allie and I are getting settled in. We're liking it, especially now that we've got the fall weather. My first taste of a southern summer was very humid. I'm glad it's fall. I'm glad we're in the sweater weather. Um, anyway, I'm going to jump right in pretty quickly today. Uh, my guest this week is Bill McKay. Um, he started performing at a young age, ended up going to school in Colorado, 1987 to 1991. Uh, played around with several bands and toured with Bon um, all over the country, and then joined the Derek Trucks Band in 1995 and was with that group for five years as lead singer and keyboardist. Uh, Derek Trucks, Bill said in the interview, was just 16 at the time. Uh, and then he joined Leftover Salmon, went back home to Colorado. He was in Atlanta while he was playing with Derek Trucks, went back home, joined Leftover Salmon, was with them for a decade, um, and he's... He's out playing all the time. He plays with lots of different groups. He'll tell us all about them in our conversation. Um, what it's like being a side person versus solo artist, somebody who's composing their own music versus someone who's learning someone else's music. He has a very diverse palette as a performer. And uh, we also chat at the end some about addiction. Um, Bill got sober about 12 years ago, and he chats about that at the end and has some very insightful stuff to say. So stick around. Check it out. Um, I want to mention a couple of sister episodes, I guess, if you will. Um, speaking about leftover salmon, as Bill does, as he was in the group for a while, if you go back to episode 73 of the podcast, which came out May 20th of May 20th, excuse me, of 2021, I chatted with Drew Emmett of Leftover Salmon. He's a founding member. And then episode 74, which came out the following week, uh, is with Greg Garrison, who's been the bass player in Leftover Salmon for many years, and he was also one of my college professors. Fun fact. And then episode 80 is with Todd Smalley, uh, who played with Derek Trucks uh, during the same era as Bill was with Trucks, so there's some combining stories there if you want to hear two different perspectives. Um, and uh, they're still good buddies, and Todd went on to play with J.G. Gray and Mofro and lots of other folks. So, anyway, some sister episodes, 73, 74, and 80. Uh, when you get done with this one, if you want to go check those out, um, I will mention those in the show notes as well. And I also mention Bill McKay's website, which is where he wants to... Uh, that's where he wants people to go. That's where he's funneling his audience, and it's BillMcKayMusic.com, and that is spelled M-C-K-A-Y. Um, I think that's about it. If you'd like to support the podcast in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. I put up um, stuff from my career, my artist stuff, songs, early releases, and I also put up some uh, early releases from the podcast, or sometimes I put up uh, things that I don't send out to everybody. You can do that for as little as $3 a month. And I'm offering 
a temporary arrangement where if you join Patreon, any tier, doesn't matter which tier, um, I'll record a custom cover song for you. I'm getting some fun requests. Um, some Buddy Holly, some Ava Brothers, some Taylor Swift. Anyway, so if you join Patreon for as little as three bucks a month, you can request a cover song for me and I'll record a custom cover just for you. Okay, uh, and a quick thanks to our sponsor, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratormusic.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, uh, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Let's do the show. Well, Bill McKay is joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, thank you. It's good to it's good to have you on. And you're are you in Boulder currently, or where are you where are you at? I'm in Arvada. I'm in the greater Denver area. Cool, cool. And even though we're listening, uh, even though this is you know audio, people are listening uh, rather than watching for the most part. Can you tell me what's behind you? The keyboards there. Oh um, yeah, this is sort of my uh, office slash music room occasional recording room and guest room all in one that so me, I, and my, me and my kids have dubbed this room the alpha base the alpha base alpha base so um this is some of my keyboards back here there's a fender Rhodes there uh oh. that i've had for a long long time and on the top of the Rhodes is a a roland vk7 which is one of two of those that I have, which is an organ keyboard. It's a digital organ, slightly older model, but um, one of my favorites. That's why I bought a second one. It has drawbars and everything, and it's that's it, part of my main gigging rig is is my other VK7. Oh wow! Um, and then I have a I have a little kind of workstation over here that with uh, you know my speakers and my recording stuff, but I I, I haven't really been utilizing. Um, as much as I would like to, it's it, been more of an alpha base and a guest room in the last couple of years than than a recording studio. <laughs> so. Well, well, with that kind of a setup, I would love to. I'd love to be a guest. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're a keyboard player, guest staying in the alpha base, then you have free run on my Fender Rhodes all you want. You can play on that thing all you want. It's in great shape. I've got mine. To I can't tilt tilt my computer, but I've got mine uh, next to me here that I got oh, a couple of years ago. And uh, oh, that's fantastic! I I got it originally because I was thinking this is going to be my thing with my band now. Instead of bringing the Yamaha and the Nord, I'm going to bring this Rhodes. Oh, pl plug a pedal board into it, and I'm going to be the Rhodes guy. Took it to one gig at the Aggie Theater, and I said, I'm "Never doing that again." I was about to ask how long did that last for you? One gig. That's one it. gig. <laughs> so, so in my earlier days, um, I actually got this Fender Rhodes when I was in college. I went to college in Colorado Springs, and um, and that's quite some time ago now. And uh, when I came out from New York, I'm originally from New York, and started up school. I didn't have a keyboard with me, and I was already a performing musician. I had been playing in bands and in bar in bars since I was like 13 up in New York. So I've been a, already been a band guy and I came out and I, I started playing with some, some guys. I basically was looking, I would just find a piano on campus, whether it was in the, the uh, rehearsal room or in the, the lounge of the dorm or whatever. I was just finding yeah. pianos to play on and I didn't have any kind of keyboard. And so I started playing um, with the band in, in college and 
one of the guys who was a friend of the band um, was like, you need, you need a keyboard. Like, you don't have a keyboard. And he actually bought this Rhodes and let me use it. And wow. so I gigged with this Rhodes for not only through college, but after college. I gigged and carried this thing around and tuned it up and took care of it for many, many years. So I lasted a lot longer than one gig with it. But yeah, I mean, it was, it, I, I, it fit in the trunk of my old 65 Plymouth at the time. And wow, this is a long time ago. That's when I first started playing this Rhodes. And, um, so, I mean, literally we're talking I, I to date myself, but like 30, 35 years ago. And, uh, and then when I, when I was graduating college and leaving, he sold it to me and I, and, and said, you need to have this, you know, I'm not going to play it. He wasn't a musician himself. He had bought it simply so I could have a keyboard and we gigged around and I, mm. and, uh, and he sold it to me for like 500 bucks or something at the time. Wow. Know? And so over the decades, it came and went from my life. I always owned it, but I would move. I would go on tour and I wouldn't really have a place and I would put it at a friend's house or I would store it in a storage uh, unit. And then I started moving it to studios, friends studios. And then when I got married at the time and I, I moved into a house and, um, and, and this and that, I just didn't have a spot for it. So it was at one studio, like up in Netherlands at one point, it was at another studio in Denver. Uh, a couple different friends of mine who were keyboard players kind of took care of it and actually used it. Um, gigged with it so this this Rhodes has had quite a life um you know and touring around the state of Colorado and then it was up at my my friend Arthur Leland's studio at the end of this whole process and I finally I got divorced and I moved into a, a, a house where I have the alpha base room here yeah um I finally went and picked it up and I got it back in my in my possession so um there's, you know, a little bit of a history to this keyboard. And then I had to finally, I set it up in here and I, I had, a, I tuned it up and I got it going again. And now it's in good shape and I don't intend on moving it uh, anytime soon. But yeah, this, this keyboard has had quite a life of, of its own. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say when I, I can't tell from the camera angle, but you've got the full speaker on it too. No, yes. there's no, there's okay, not okay. A, it's on the legs. Okay. That yeah. helps a little bit with the weight. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was a heavy keyboard. I never had. It wasn't the uh, the suitcase. It, it was. Yep. It's a stage piano, so they're different. It has the legs. Yeah, that's that's what mine is too. Um, you know, I think that's it's lighter. It's lighter. <laughs> if it, yeah, you know. as light as it could be. I did the same thing with Wurlitzer pianos too. I had I had two Wurlitzers over the years, and I would carry those around and tune those up and maintain those. And mm. uh, you know, once I finally started playing digital pianos decades ago i i you know i stopped because they're, they're, they're a pain it's a lot of work to carry and maintain a Rhodes or a wurlitzer um you know between tuning and replacing reeds and and all that kind of thing and, uh, and the electronics it, it can be difficult if you don't have some, a keyboard tech you know what do you think about the evolution of of digital keyboards since you started gigging i i mean if you if, if you piano players have played on the on some of the new Nords or there's, there's several uh, companies, right? Hammond's making some stuff, but if you've played on some of these new digital pianos, they're kind of incredible. Uh, I just, I just recently was able to buy a, a new keyboard for the first time, a new like full gigging keyboard. First time in over 20 years, I, I've been playing yeah. rolling weighted key pianos and I played the same rolling weighted key piano for 20 years. I actually have a couple of them 
because I was parting one out because the parts started to become unavailable. So I started to part one out for the other one. Um, and the, I mean, that keyboard being over 20 years old is a great weighted key digital piano, but they do keep progressing. And I finally bought a Yamaha, which I, I never thought I'd buy a Yamaha. And it's, it's a, uh, a YC88. Mm. And it's um, it's got a full organ module in it with the drawbars and everything and a full Leslie and everything. But it's also a full weighted key piano. And it's got all the bells and whistles of of every every other sound you can want. So it's all a whole workstation gig and keyboard in one keyboard. Whereas, you know, my other rig is is this VK7 back here or my other VK7 and a, and a weighted key piano. So both those keyboards are kind of combined into this one Yamaha. So... The technology is unbelievable. The thing sounds amazing. And so you're not a stickler for like old vintage gear or anything. It's just whatever's whatever's there and sounds good. Uh, I'm not a stickler. I own vintage gear. I own a B3, um, yeah. uh, and which I used to also carry around for a long time. Um, I had a Hammond L100 before that that I carried around for, for a decade. And a Leslie, uh, my, my Hammond and Leslie live at a backline company now and they get rented out occasionally. It's actually about to undergo some major overhaul. And I have the roads and I ha have a Wurlitzer that's being um, refurbished right now. Mm. So I own vintage gear. Um, I've never been much of a synthesizer guy, so I don't have any moves or any of that stuff. But yeah, um, my thing, not being a stickler about vintage gear, digital equipment is so good now that you can get a road sound a, a Wurlitzer sound and these great Hammond organ sounds out of digital keyboards now and not have to go through the process of, of hauling one around right. now that's not to say for certain shows I won't still use a B3 I'll still pull out my B3 if I have a big show at a theater or a festival or something or if there's a backline I always gravitate towards a backline Hammond right. um, and there's a few venues in Colorado that have a, a, a stage Hammond you know yeah but in terms of uh the setup and the carrying around and everything it, it for the smaller gigs it's just not worth it to me anymore or to my back you know it's just right. not something that my back can handle anymore and this stuff that that we're playing now is sounds amazing yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, to go back a little bit i know you got in involved in music very young you were you were saying earlier that you were you know, out in New York playing and stuff. But I was reading that you were touring, you know, in high school, like you were going to England and Wales and Amsterdam. You were doing all kinds of stuff from a young age. How did this, how did this first come about, this love for music and travel? Well, that um, tour that you're reading, that you're uh, mentioning was with my high school choir. That was a, a singing Oh, cool. Group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, um, I started taking piano lessons when I was around six years old. So it, I was bit by the bug very, very early on. And um, I also was a, was singing. I was my first paying gig. Uh, my first professional gig was a voice as a boy soprano in a church choir in New York. And um, it was the Episcopalian Church, even though I was being raised Catholic, uh, a big Irish Catholic family. Mm -hmm. And so it was a minor scandalous situation because I could no longer go to Sunday mass <clears throat> at the Catholic church because I was getting paid uh, uh, at the time minimum wage, which was like 375 or something to go to rehearsals and perform at the Episcopalian church. So 
you know, wow. not a major rivalry rivalry between the two branches of <laughs> Catholicism, but it was enough, you know, and that, so I started when, before my voice even changed, I was a soprano and um, I had a professional gig in a, in a, in a local, but professional choir. Mm. Uh, and I played piano and I played classical music and all sorts of stuff all the way up into high school. And it was my high school uh, choir chorus it was a combined there was a barbershop group that was a broken down group but there was a big high school choir slash chorus that we went on tour to amsterdam and to london and wales and these other places and performed and we did a lot of uh really professional stuff so that was a singing group i've been a singer longer if not as long as a, a piano player as well so that's that's where that came from mm. and um you know when i when I was in high school, I was in a, a, a few bands, a dead cover band all the way back in high school and playing around New York mm. and playing in bars at the age of 14, 15. Um, the drinking age in New York at the time was only 18. Right. So it was a little bit easier for me to uh, to play in the bars at that time. Um, and then I, when I came out to, to college, um, I performed, uh, you know, locally around Colorado. But right out of college, I was on the road, and I, I joined a band called Band Du Jour, which was based in Boulder, mm. and we were a, a a big band. We were a very serious band, and we we uh, we we used to play at the Fox Theater in Boulder when it first opened. For the first few years, we were sort of a house band. We were in there once a month, selling out a weekend, a Friday and Saturday night for years. Wow. We, we were the big we were a big deal in Boulder, Colorado. And we toured all over the country in our vans and drove with my Hammond and my Leslie and uh toured for about five years. We that band went to um Japan mm. and um and uh South Korea and some other things. It was a it was a DOD tour. So we were sponsored by the military and we were playing a lot of military bases, but we also played a lot of local stuff too. So I was on tour um, fresh out of college and basically had been ever since, I, you know, um, I, I then I, I spent 11 years with leftover salmon and in, in to just to jump back and, and hit on something really quick. You said you had, you went on a tour that was sponsored by the military. How did that work? How did that come about? Well, it was the, it was a DOD tour, not a USO tour. So the USO is a private organization that that provides entertainment for military. Um, the DOD is the Department of Defense. So this is actually sponsored, paid for, and arranged by the the Department of Defense by the Pentagon. So um, they do it all over the world. Mm. They, um, I don't remember how I wasn't the one that got got it and lined it up and all that. It was the band leader of Bandageur at the time. Um, but yeah, we we uh, we went through a process and. And uh, and we we flew to uh, uh, to Tokyo, and we started a tour out there. We brought we had to bring equipment. We had to bring our own equipment, and even bring a small PA. And um, I brought one keyboard, actually a keyboard that I have over here. Still, I'm looking at it. Surprisingly enough, I'm looking at the keyboard that I bought for that trip, which is a an Ensonic Ensonic uh, keyboard. Mm. This is so funny. It's quite a guest room. <laughs> that one leaning against the wall there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the Ensonique that I bought for this this tour I'm talking about. I can't believe it. It's I, I mean I still have it. I don't tend to get rid of keyboards. So um so it was I don't know how it came about. I don't know where the offer originally came from or anything, but 
it was a really unique experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. We 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 were flying on C-130s with our equipment strapped on pallets and being loaded up by Marines and GIs. And we played on, we played all over Japan and Okinawa. We act, no, I'm sorry, we started in South Korea. We flew originally to Seoul. The second half was in Japan. And uh it's mm. a long time ago. So yeah, it was it was a it was a very interesting, educational, enlightening trip. And uh, we entertained the troops. And you were allowed to play other shows on off days, but that was your main. The main well, it, we were, we were everything was scheduled. So they scheduled us for some festivals, some gigs for local people. We didn't really have like club dates or theater dates. It was usually a, a mm -hmm. festival of some sort, an exchange festival or a quote unquote friendship festival, and that's kind of the other things we did. But the majority of what we did was military bases and we played on army bases marine bases navy bases air force bases and even did one or two coast guard bases mm. um yeah and it was uh some days were better than others some days were really tough but it was it was a very unique experience and i wouldn't i wouldn't trade it for the world you came to colorado initially for college is that right yeah but you didn't major in music I did not major in music. I have a political science degree. Did you ever use that, or did did you just keep playing music all the way through? Did I ever use my political science degree? Yeah. Um, when I um, expound on my political theory views to people who don't really want to hear it, yeah, I, I <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got a no, PhD. I've never used. I've never used it to make a living. I, what happened was I, I got into college and I had been, I was already a professional musician when I came into college. Like I said, I was already playing in clubs and I, I knew that I knew deep down that music was what I was going to do. Mm. Um, and so I started to get, go through college and I wanted to, at one point in about my sophomore year, I was taking music classes, not, uh, I was taking a lot of music history and world music classes. Um, I studied African music. I studied uh, Native American music. I studied East Asian music, Indian music, um, uh, Bulgarian folk music. You know, I, I was all over the map. I also took a lot of music history and I wanted to be a ethnomusicologist. I became fascinated with African music and I had this, this concept of, I wanted to, to get a degree in ethnomusicology, which is the study of culture through music. And I wanted to go to Africa and, and, and be an ethnomusicologist. And, um, and I proposed this major to, to, to the major didn't exist at the school, but you were able to propose a major and you had to draft it and utilize the existing uh, curriculum and all this stuff. And I, I proposed it the first time to the board of, of tenured professors and everything. And they, they didn't reject it, but they returned it for some revisions. And at this point, I was think I was heading into my, I was in, maybe in my junior year. And I realized that, that, you know, school was, I was running out of time, so to speak. And, and uh, I just kind of did a big pivot. And I realized that I was going to be a musician no matter what. Um, I wanted to go on tour. I wanted to travel the U.S. I wanted to play rock and roll music. I wanted to do all these things. And I always had this fascination for African culture and history and music. And so I, I completely pivoted my whole 
thought process and said, I want to get out of school in four years because it's costing money. I want to get a degree. I don't want to be the eternal student and, and be in college for a decade trying to pursue this thing. So I said, what is something that I know nothing about so that I can actually get an education for myself out of this school? Mm. And it was political science because I had taken poetry and English and writing. I was a good writer and an avid reader. Um, I've always been a voracious reader. Um, and I've never been much uh, good at, at the sciences, you know, and the mathematics. So I immediately pivoted. I hadn't taken a single political science class and I dove in. And for the last year and a half of school, I took nothing but political theory, political science, local politics, all everything that it took to get the degree. And I graduated with a political science degree. So it was really done more for myself um, because I knew I was going to be a musician. I wasn't in a music school. I didn't want to take any more music classes. I was already educating myself. And I wanted the road to be my musical teacher. Yeah. Which it then proceeded to do um, right. for good and for bad for the next 30 years of my life. So <laughs> the road educated me. <laughs> what, what was, I'm sure, what what was the fascination with African culture and music? Was there a specific record you had as a kid or, or anything like that that drew you to it? No, I took one class early on that was uh, um, Kalahari Bush music um, from Kenya. And, and it, it kind of just triggered this thing I, I couldn't say, I couldn't put my finger on a particular event or music or anything. I just, it, it was a part of the country that fascinated me. The roots of so much American music having come from African music, the stuff that I was um, influenced by, the blues and jazz, um, you know, all trace their roots to Africa and and, uh, and everything traces its roots to Africa, culture-wise and everything else. So. It was just the overall concept of, of the continent and the music and the culture. And what I ended up doing was I ended up studying um, a lot about African politics mm. when I became a political science major. And so I said, well, uh, I still have this fascination with Africa. I still have never been to Africa, even to this day. Um, it's just my life took all these other twists and turns. I still have an intention of going. But um so I ended up writing a thesis on African politics and studying the history of African colonialism and, and all this wow. other stuff through my yeah. political science. So I still continued it. I just uh, moved away from the music side of it. Yeah. When are you going to make that trip? Um, as soon as someone donates me uh, about 10 grand. <laughs> let's, let's put it out into the universe right now. <laughs> I would go. I would go anytime. I, you know, world, the life... Uh, life takes turns you know and life life serves you up uh things that you don't expect and i have kids now and yeah and i, I have a career and i have a home and i love colorado and i just it, it'll happen I, I just uh other things have happened along the way so yeah yeah uh one of those things so you graduated college in in 91 was it correct yeah and then you're you're out on the road with various bands for a few years and then in 1995, uh, you get a call to join the Derek Trucks band. I did. Where did that, how did that all start? And and he was just at this point getting started too. I mean, he wasn't, uh, I mean, he was a Derek, big deal, but not 
what he is now yeah, yet. He was already known in, in Florida. Yeah. Um, he was 16, I think, at the time. So what happened was this band, Band Du Jour, which toured all over the country, um, we became friends with the guys in the Aquarium Rescue Unit, uh, fronted by Colonel Bruce Hampton, a band made up of some of the greatest musicians of our time, in my opinion. Jimmy Herring, Jeff Sipe, O'Teal Burbridge, um, and Colonel Bruce, and a guy named Matt Mundy, who was the mandolin player. And then eventually Kofi Burbridge came into that group as well. So I made friends with Jimmy and, and Sipe and O'Teal and Colonel Bruce um, through touring. We would bandage her and, and ARU did a few gigs together. Like, I, I don't know, in, out of Lawrence, Kansas or in uh, Chicago or in Colorado. We would just always crossing paths. And um, so I got to know them. So it, it was Colonel Bruce and Jimmy who referred me to a very young Derek Trucks and his management and his father, mm. which is brother Chris Trucks. Um, so it was actually Colonel Bruce, which is one of his legacies, is putting musicians together and and finding them placed niches to be. It was Colonel Bruce that that uh, connected me with Derek, and I was in living in Boulder, and I got a phone call on the rotary phone. <laughs> an actual phone call that had a little bell that rang and you picked up the <laughs> right and it was a guy named monkey odom and i could barely understand his thick southern accent on the phone i really could ba barely understand it and uh and he said i want you to come play with this kid named Derek trucks and i'd never heard of him i didn't know anything about him but i was band du jour was kind of on its last legs and and i was in my mid-20s and i wanted to do something so I packed up all my gear, my Hammond, my Leslie, all my keyboards, and actually originally drove down to Texas, met them in Texas, and did a few shows as sort of a trial run. And uh, they said, come on, throw your stuff in our trailer. And I, I drove out to Atlanta, and I ended up eventually moving to Atlanta and living in Atlanta for about five years and wow. recorded three or four records with Derek. And we toured incessantly, madly, for years. Yeah. In vans, vans with trailers. Eventually, we graduated to an RV um, and a bus. Eventually, but yeah, I, I spent five years um, with with the Derek Trucks band. Was this was did you overlap with Todd Smalley at all? I was in the band with Todd. Okay, when I first, yeah. when I first when I first joined the Derek Trucks band, we were a four piece. It was me, Todd, Derek, and Yanrico Scott. Mm. Has since passed away. Who was. Todd is still one of my dear friends, and I still I just played with him just the other day. Um, but Rico, who has passed away, was was a very dear friend of mine, and I love him dearly, and I think about him almost every day. But yeah. we were four piece for a few years, and then Kofi joined the band, and we yeah. became a four piece with two keyboards. And you were singing. I was the lead singer. Yeah, we didn't do. Um, we did. We were about half and half instrumental. Yeah. Uh, the that that form of the Derek Trucks band was was a jazz fusion rock jazz fusion band. Um, we were not in the vein of the Tedeschi Trucks band now, or or we, we didn't play any Allman Brothers music. We didn't play, but we played some old blues. We played some some Sunhouse and some uh, you know Lead Belly and um, I don't know some BB King and Bobby Bland and stuff like that. But we also would take jazz standards miles davis tunes wayne shorter songs 
and reinvent them in a sort of funk fusion way. Yeah. And Derek would, Derek would take the horn lines and translate them on slide guitar. And we also wrote quite a bit. We wrote some really whacked out and intense rock fusion. Yeah. We were really rock, a rock slash blues fusion band. Um, and, but for the for the vocals, for the blues tunes and, and some original music, I was the lead singer, yeah. Well, listening, checking out, you know, I guess it was the, the self-title and Out of the Darkness, you know, and hearing a version of, say, Mr. PC. Uh, right. Or Footprints, and it it sounded like everyone was just having a good time and, and jamming. I mean, it was, you know, it was a, it was a great group. It was a musically. highly improvisational concept. And yeah. the, the thing about the four of us, when we came together, we were, all came from fairly disparate and different musical uh, histories and, and, and regions. I mean, I came into the group, I had a fascination with jazz, but I was a deadhead. And I was a Bob Dylan fan and I was a reggae fan. And these things were not as well known to Derek himself or Jan Rico was a Detroit guy who had spent his large part of his career in, in Atlanta and had played with some of the great R&B people like, like uh, um, what do they call it? After Seven was a big R&B group. I mean, he had played with Stevie Wonder. He had played with, with uh, um, I think he played with Whitney Houston, toured to the tour with Whitney Houston. He was an R&B guy translated all these people and todd was a um a jazz fusion guy a jocko guy a, a jazz guy derek was coming out of this the allman brothers extended family but he had a fascination with the early blues so we brought all these elements together into this group that sat in the van and drove all over the country and set up in every little club all over the place and every uh you know Chitlin Circuit venue down in the South and all over to, to the West Coast and all the way up to New York and Chicago and all over the country. And just every time we got on stage, we just brought these elements together and created this really incredible music. Um, and we learned a lot from each other and we taught each other a lot. How did that gig eventually end? I mean, did I, I, it was about five, five years, your stint. Did you think that was going to keep going for a while or did something else uh, pop up? I, th there's a lot of answers to that question. I, I I was living in Atlanta. I wasn't really terribly happy in Atlanta. Um, the, their trucks band kept going after I left. I mean, they they hired a lead singer and then another lead singer and uh, Mike, who is actually one of the members of Tedeschi Trucks Band now, uh, and Kofi stayed on. So the Derek Trucks Band just morphed, and I left. Yeah. And there were you know there were a few reasons. I I wasn't happy. I was I was a mess. I I I was a you know, chemically challenged and alcohol challenged. And I had a lot of issues going on in my life and I, I wasn't a happy person. And so I left and I left Atlanta mm. because right as I was living in Atlanta, I, I was still in Atlanta after I left the Derek trucks band, very miserable human being and, and um, having a hard time. And I got a call from my old friends in leftover salmon just yeah. randomly on the phone one day. Um, and they were coming to town and they were also going through one of their many periodic membership changes at the time yeah i went out to the same thing i went down to athens georgia and i played a couple gigs with them and they were old friends of mine i had known vince for a decade already from the from early boulder days and and mark van was a friend of mine so i had known these guys and i ended up come moving back to colorado uh and joining leftover sam and it was you know about face musically i mean the, the thing is that 
the common thread to everything I'm telling you is Colonel Bruce Hampton, because Colonel Bruce was famous for doing things like he basically created this Derek Trucks band with Rico, Todd, me and Derek. Yeah. Um, and 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 bringing and he was very conscious of the fact that he was putting musicians together that came from these disparate disparate and different musical because he wanted you know was wanted to see for himself what that would create yeah this, this was bruce's talent and and um and he also had a large part to do with you know the personality and formation and aspects of leftover sam leftover salmon had formed their own genre of music i mean leftover right. Created uh, polyethnic Cajun slam grass, you know. So they already had set themselves out. They'd already been around for ten years, right. as a band. And I joined them, and I, and I anyway. So yeah, I came back to Colorado very happily. I might add, I was glad to be coming back. And I then proceeded to tour and and perform with Leftover for eleven years. Did you, after leaving the band, I mean, do you still now stay in touch with Derek at all or anybody in the Tedeschi Trucks group? Have you, have you sat in or was that done in 2000? Um, I, I, well, I'm, I'm good friends with Todd still. Um, yeah, and right, Rico right. passed away and Kofi passed away. And it's incredibly heartbreaking to, to even think about that. Um, I, I, last time I saw Derek was uh, a few years ago, probably just before covid when I went to one of their shows at Red Rocks and I did go backstage and, and reconnected and talked so like, so we're on good terms. I don't really um, keep in regular touch with Derek um, or, or really any of the, the Tedeschi trucks band. I, I'm not, I'm not really, I don't really run in those circles. Right. Um, I was with Derek. We were on tour and I was with Derek the day that he, uh, that he met Susan. I remember very well. And she used to jump in our RV and travel around with us and he'd jump on her bus and, and uh, I, I was with with them during their whole sort of courtship, musical courtship period as well. So really, I went history, but no, I, I just it's just different circles, just like a lot of people I played with. I don't really uh, keep in touch, so to speak, with Derek. Um, I'm sure if I was to go out there, or he'd come here. I could I could reconnect. There's, there's no no ill will whatsoever. Yeah. And the same is true with Leftover. I, I'm still friends with Vince and, uh, and, and everybody. And I, I still see them. I've played with, I've played, um, various things with Vince, Drew, um, Greg and, uh, Andy Thorne over the years. So I, I, we're, we're, we're on good terms too. Well, and, and worth mentioning, um, Drew Emmett, if we go all the way back to episode 73 of the podcast, I chatted with Drew Emmett and, uh, and then Greg Garrison episode 74, I'll put those in the show notes. Todd Smalley's been on as well. Just had to do a quick plug there since we're throwing around all Absolutely. those names. Um, it, and Salmon, you know, like you said, their own genre of music. So, and that was, you did that for, you said 10, 11 years? 11 years I was in the band, yeah. 11 years. Um, were you able to do a bunch of other stuff during that? I mean, were, did you have a solo project going during that as well, or did that keep you pretty busy? Well, it was a turbulent um, the first five years that I was in the band because right um, a couple years after I joined, Mark Van got very ill with cancer and passed away. And he was the founding banjo player member of Leftover Salmon. He was an old friend of mine. I knew him before I was ever in the band. So um, I was in the band going strong and we were going very strong. We had a new, new rhythm section, me joining the band. We had new material coming in. And then Mark got sick and, and passed away fairly quickly. Um, 
And it we we plugged along for I don't know a year. We 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 had a rotating cast of banjo players that came through the band. Uh, Tony Furtado, uh, um, wow. Scott Bestel, yeah, uh, Reverend Jeff Mosier. Uh, um, I'm trying to think. There was a whole bunch of of really top notch banjo players that came through. And um, and then we we connected with all these different musicians, and we just kept going. We never really took a moment to to pause, or to even really grieve Mark's passing. So we eventually stopped. Yeah. And leftover took. I can't remember now, but we didn't play at all. We took a hiatus. We didn't play at all for maybe almost two years, or a year and a half, with occasional little things here and there but we as a touring and and really hard hitting band we we basically quit for a while and um and then we came back and and there was a demand for for us um especially on the festival circuit and so we came back and we started hitting just fly dates and big festivals and uh and just and and, and kind of reformed the band again and then um hit the road and then it was back to back to yeah back to serious touring and for another you know uh seven eight years i i can't remember the exact timeline but yeah so it was a the there was a there was a very hard period there after mark passed away for sure you've got quite a resume as as a side person you've played with a a, a lot of groups um and and I know you're still playing in a lot of groups and you've done a lot of uh, tribute things as well. But I know also that you focus on composing and writing and singing, doing your own stuff. What's the balance of being a side person versus being a solo artist? And how are you able to manage doing both? That's a, a good question. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Um, it's just a matter of what's in front of me over that week or the month ahead of me. And um, like I said, I do a lot of solo stuff. I, I really, really gravitate towards solo piano gigs because I've been a piano player fundamentally the whole time. Yep. Yes, I'm a B3 player and electric keyboard player and all these other things, but fundamentally I'm a piano player. Yeah. And um, that allows me to do, whether I'm playing in a tiny restaurant for five people or I'm playing in a theater for more people or an outdoor festival, whatever it might be, I could touch on a long history of original material that I've written. Um, and that allows me the, the uh, avenue to, to pursue, you know, pretty, play pretty much anything I want. I mean, I, I'm basically a blues guy, but I play a lot of folk and, and some country and I play some jazz. I play some um, stride and and sort of boogie woogie stuff on the piano. I, I do a lot of different stuff, but I'm also able to do my original. I also have Bill McKay band, which is my own band, um, which we we can lean very. We, we we're a funk band. We're, we 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 do some James Brown, some Bill Withers, uh, that kind of thing, but we, with some Neville Brothers and Meters and all that. But we also do a large amount of my original material, and I don't push that band too hard as much as I maybe did in the past. I kind of got burned out on, on cold calling every single club in the state to try to get a $300 gig for my <laughs> four or five band. Yeah. You know, so 
uh, that's kind of a specialty band now. I mean, I'll still take some gigs. I get calls for private events and weddings or whatever it might be. And I'll still book us for, we had a really good summer this past summer, Bill McKay band mm. playing some really good outdoor shows around the state and some really bigger shows that were very successful. And it sort of breathed new life into me for my band and my original material. So that being said, in terms of balancing it, if I have a, um, a a gig coming up, like I just did a gig with the Drunken Hearts, my friend Andrew McConthy, mm-hmm. and um, I had never done a, an act, I'd known those guys for a long time. I just had never done a gig with the Drunken Hearts, and so I got into uh, I got into the music and sat down, and over the course of a couple of days, I charted out, you know, twenty or twenty five original songs by Andrew. Mm-hmm. That took up a large amount of time and effort, and it's good for me to do that. But that's so that I focused on somebody else's music and learning it and charting it out and and arrange and the arrangements and everything and go play the gig. So now that's in my book, and I'm able to go do more gigs with them. I have in my one of my iPads, I have books and books of original material that I've charted out for all these different bands that I may have played with. So it's to me. Everything I do just adds. There's never any subtraction. It's just a matter of adding to a palette and to the ability to get a call. Hey, do you remember us? You did a gig with us five years ago. I'll go with my book. Oh, yeah, I got your original material right here charted out. And I can still go play gigs. And then there's the tribute bands, too, like the Other Brothers, which is the Almond Brothers band that I'm in, um, which also doesn't play very often because it's an all-star band and everybody's got a million things. Todd Smalley's in that band as well. Yeah. And, um, but that's if I have a big all other brothers show, then I might sit down and go back over the Allman Brothers music and make sure that I'm on, on track with that and that I'm caught up because I'm singing the Greg Allman stuff. So I want to make sure that I'm up to par for that. You know, um, I'm also occasionally in a band called Steely Dead. Uh, and so I, I know what they play, I think. Yeah, right. And they're on tour right now, actually, and they do a lot of stuff um, as a four-piece. There's a second keyboard player in that band, mm. and they go out without me all the time because I don't gravitate towards touring as much as as I used to. Um, but I am playing with them this upcoming Saturday at the Fox Theater in Boulder. And so when I have a gig, I got to you know sit down and make sure I touch base back on some of the Steely Dead stuff and and the stuff you know. So it's really just a matter of day to day, week to week, month to month, what I have in front of me. But the con- the constant underpinning and underlying theme in my life is is p- piano, is solo piano, and trying to write. Which, like I said, the muse has been absent for quite some time in terms of writing. Mm. But I'll still revisit and rearrange some of my old material and 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 stuff like that. So, you have a very diverse palette in, in terms of genre and and uh, all these people that you that you play with, all these different groups, along with the solo gigs. If you could do one gig for the next ten years, but just one, and and money's not an issue here. It's gonna it's gonna pay your bills. But what would what would that gig be? What would the true love be if you could do just one thing? I would have my own band. I think um, I, I, I it's a hard question to answer because I really love doing the Allman Brothers music. You know, I really love playing Dead music. I've been a Deadhead my whole life. I love playing with all my friends and doing other things. I do, but the th- the reason I answer that way is because with my own band, I can play it, all that stuff. I can play an Allman Brothers tune if I feel like it, or a Dead tune. We don't really do that stuff for the most part. Um, we're more of an R&B and funk blues band, but I also can focus on my original material in my band. 
And I can play original material that, that spans my whole career. Songs I wrote way back in Bandageur, songs I wrote for Leftover Salmon, songs I wrote for a band called Coral Creek that I was in for many, many years. I was also in a yeah. band called Coral Creek for, for about five or six years. Right. So the reason that that's the answer is because it just offers me the ability. It's like taking my solo piano gig and expanding it to a full band. Right. Meaning, meaning I have full creative control i have full creative uh exploration and uh <laughs> and i'm i you know i'm i'm the one that calling the shots and having been in so many different bands over the years that's a really relaxing and refreshing thing for me in a lot of ways you know yeah yeah absolutely and i know you you don't gravitate towards touring as much as you used to did that stop at a certain point was there at a certain age where you said you know what i'm done uh with sleeping on the floor of of super eight motels or what was the decision to uh are we ever are we ever done with that i mean isn't that gonna I be a part of i don't think so i don't <laughs> think so i don't think you're ever done with it uh well what happened was when i was in leftover i got married and i had my first kid my son um and and then i i left leftover under under not such pleasant circumstances and and uh and then I got, I quit drinking, and it took me a while to, to do that. I, I it was a lifetime of of hard living, rock and roll living, of alcohol and drugs and everything, and and I quit. And I'm about to come up on twelve years of being sober, actually. Wow. So, um, when when that happened, leaving this massively touring band, and uh, and quitting drinking and having a kid, and then having my second child, my daughter, um, those factors contributed i still was then i was in a band called coral creek and we did tour we toured a fair amount i still kind of tried to put my foot down about not doing it quite as intensively um but that started to burn burn me out as well so really as my kids started growing up and and i really truly embraced the the sobriety which i am so happy about i don't even think about it anymore mm. um then the touring just kind of fell away i wanted to be around for my kids I did definitely was tired of sleeping on floors and driving all over the place and all the stresses that come. It's a, it can be a very stressful life. It can be a very stressful life in terms of logistics. Is the, is the, the bus or the van going to break down? Are you going to miss a flight? Is a flight going to get canceled? Are you going to show up to a gig and they don't have a sound system? You're going to show up to a gig and the venue doesn't exist anymore. Or are you going to not get paid at the end of the night? Um, is somebody going to get sick? Is somebody going to get in a big fight in the middle of, of Chicago and, and somebody's going to fly home? Like there's just so many factors that are very stressful. And any touring musician knows this. I'm not speaking some new thing. Everybody knows how stressful it can be. Yeah. And on top of that, it's very lonely. Yeah. Uh, it affects a musician's mental health very, very significantly. And we all also recognize that. I think anybody that's yeah. done it recognizes that. And it can cost lives, you know, it can, it can, it can take people's lives and it can cause it, it, it costs relationships. It costs health. It costs a lot. It costs a lot. And it can be very, very difficult and very lonely. And in all of those things I just described really kind of as years went on, I just kind of gravitated away from it. I'd rather be home. I'd rather be with my children um, I'd rather, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm divorced now, but I'm very good friends with my ex-wife and we, we speak every day and we live right down the street from each other. That's so great. I live this life where you know, my focus is on sort of being a little bit more stable. 
I still travel. I go to the Virgin Islands once a year and and play um, down there, which I've done for many years. Um, I still will, will head up to the Northeast. I'll go down to Florida. I'll go to the West Coast. I still travel and I still will jump in, out and do a tour or a fly date with somebody if the parameters match up to what I'm looking for. Sure. Um, yeah. Sure. That's a nice way to say a good paying gig uh, and not sleeping on the floor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you hit it up exactly right. Was there a bit, I mean, when you, when you stopped, uh, when you got sober, was there a worry that you wouldn't be able to find that creative place as an artist, that you wouldn't be able to visit that area while being sober? I want to make absolutely clear that, that anybody that's listening to this who is having trouble can reach out to me and or any other n innumerable resources, because it's a very good question what you're asking. And that is the biggest, um, I think, worry for any creative, whether you're a, a visual artist, a musician, an actor, poet, what, a, a writer. That question pertains to a, 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 a broad perspective of creative endeavors for people. And um, the short answer is yes, you're, you're worried. Anybody's worried because when you spend your entire life uh, performing under the influence, so to speak, not always, you know, wasted on stage, but just the overall, your overall life is saturated with drugs and alcohol and you associate everything you do with that and you associate performing and touring and even writing and, and everything with that. And so it is a concern for anybody. And, and, and there are many musicians who get sober and take on a different life path and take on a different career. Um, the longer answer is that you, you can discover very quickly, uh, not always very quickly, sometimes it takes longer, but that you don't need that and that your creativity actually was being inhibited, uh, sometimes very destructively by these yeah. things. Yeah. But, the, the 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 fooling yourself from being high and, and drunk or whatever it might be or just having that being a saturated part of your life you're fooling yourself because you think i just played so well i just wrote this great song but you know you might go back and listen to that crap and be like man that was terrible you know right because the whole concept of being an addict is fooling yourself yeah. that is the ground level of what being an addict is is lying to yourself lying to the people you love, lying to everything around you, but fundamentally lying to yourself that you're doing great yeah, and that everything's fine. And you are the most creative person and, and this and that. So it's a really bad trap, especially after a lifetime of it. Right. Um, I discovered, you know, through time because I, I had to make a decision. I, and I said to myself, well, you have to quit because it's going to kill you. Um, so the second question is, do you want to play music for a living? And the answer was very quick to come. It wasn't, I didn't even have to think about it. It was a very rhetorical question. Of course, that's what I want to do. That's what I've always done. And that's what I will do. Okay. Then the third question is, well, are you willing to be around drugs and alcohol? Because that's what it's going to take to play music. And the answer was, that answer was a little trickier to come by. But the answer in the end was yes, because those of us that, are out being sober and I'm not a preachy, I'm not an AA. I'm not someone that, you know, won't hang out with somebody because they have a drink in their hand because I decided this is a part of 
the musical life mm. is being around that playing in bars you know playing in in alcohol soused environments you know i just go home now that's a big fundamental difference i don't sit at the bar anymore i don't hang out with the people i pack up and go home you know i sit in the green room or i sit in my car you know on set break i just don't don't partake so but you but i discovered after a few years that I am not only playing better than I ever have in my entire life, I'm singing better than I have ever have in my entire life. I have more fun on a on a regular basis than I ever really, really have in my entire life. So um it's a very drawn out answer to your question. But what it, yeah. what it means, what it means is that if you are dedicated and you are you do want to be a musician then you will discover that actually you were being inhibited uh, by the drugs and alcohol and that you actually um, will be more creative and be a better better player and be a nicer person. Yeah. And you'll expand your career by being easier to work with. Yeah. Uh, you'll expand your career by being more on call and being more professional. Yeah. And you, don't, and you won't miss gigs. You won't wake up with hangovers. You won't be late. You know, all these things that contribute to being more professional will be direct results of pursuing that life. So that is a, a long answer. And when I and just to touch on it, when I say that my muse has been gone and I haven't written in a while, that doesn't mean I haven't been working hard and learning other people's music and, and learning other, you know. Sure. The muse, the muse being gone has nothing to do with that. It's I think it started really during covid and, and I had I had some heartbreak issues and some other personal issues, but the muse being gone has nothing to do with being sober. It's quite the opposite. Um, I, I think that most people will agree that getting sober will increase your create creativity. Mm. Well, that's great, and and, and thanks for uh, being willing to chat with with anybody too. Wants to chat about that, and you're easy to get a hold of on on Facebook or. Uh, oh, you, you can know, get hold through my website also, which I'll mention is, is BillMcKayMusic.com. It's yeah. very easy to get a hold of me through my website. And I try to direct all my traffic to my website because, and this is my little plug right here, um, is that my website has all the tabs across the top for everything else of mine. My Apple Music for my albums, uh, my Facebook, my, uh, I don't even know if I have a Twitter anymore, or X anymore, but but um, Instagram, whatever it might be, is all along the top. So you go to my website first. You can then go go to anywhere else through my website. Plus, it has uh, my two original albums on it, my two solo albums. It has a bunch of music from other things. It has my schedule, my calendar, which I try to keep up on, but I always have to kick myself in the butt to, to update my calendar. You'll be at um, the Wash Park Grill tonight, though. That's seeing on true. Your it's Thursday. Yes, <laughs> I, I'm at the Wash Park Grill tonight. Um, and I also, I, I've been a, a part of Wash Park Grill for over 20 years. And uh, I recently um, started playing piano. I put an, an upright piano in the dining room. Like Wash Park Grill has a lounge where we have live music on Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays. And there's a dining room, which is a beautiful restaurant. It's a great place to have great food. And I put an upright spinet piano in there, and um, I'm playing piano in the dining room every Sunday now, mm. from five to eight, um, cool. which is a, 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 something I've done for a long, long time. So, uh, yeah. So I try to direct traffic to my website, and yes, the again, long-winded answer is it's easy to get a hold of me. I do feel I have been helpful to a lot of people over the years. Anybody is more than welcome if they're struggling to reach out to me. I might not always give the best advice. But who does? And at the same time, um, 
sometimes really what people need is just someone to listen, to talk to, and people need to understand they're not alone. And I think that's one of the biggest right. things is, is uh, you start to feel very lonely, like I said, and you start to feel like nobody understands me. And the fact is, there's lots of people out here that understand. And lots of people that of all walks of life, all walks of life, lawyers, politicians, musicians, you know, postal workers, <laughs> you know, trash workers, it, 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 it doesn't discriminate. Yeah. You know, addiction doesn't discriminate. And, and I'm always willing to talk. Now, granted, I have been there for a lot of people, but I've also lost quite a few people, especially through the pandemic and this and that. You can't help everybody, but um, all you can do is try. Yeah. Yeah. And in the link to your website is in the show notes. And please note it's Bill Mick K, not Matt K, because I found right. out doing research for this show that there is a Bill M A C K A Y. It's just M C. M C capital K A Y. There is another Bill McKay with the same spelling who I've been um confused with many, many times to the point where now we're friends on Facebook and we actually have communicated here and there. And he's a little bit older than me, and he's a bluegrass musician uh, based in Wyoming, um, a fantastic flat picker and multi-instrumentalist who actually has a Grammy, I believe, for for a, a song that he wrote for somebody else. I think he's a Grammy winner. You two Bill should Kennedy. switch gigs one night. Just switch gigs. No one will... <laughs> it came close. That's how I found out about him, was I had somebody contact me years ago and say, hey, I'm coming to see you in Golden. And I was like, I'm not playing in Golden that night. And uh, they sent me the thing, and it said Bill McKay and Friends. Same spelling and everything. Bill McKay and Friends. So I had to look the guy up, you know. And sure enough, I we now are friends on Facebook and, and communicate, wow. and we have the exact same name. But we play slightly different kinds of music. And I just had someone just last week send me an email asking me if I could uh, accompany the Wyoming uh, choral group for some sort of holiday party um, on banjo. And I said, uh, you don't want me to do that. You got the, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't want me to do that for one. And I think I know the guy you're looking for. So, <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Well, hey, if you don't mind, stay on the line with me for just one second, but in front of our audience, I want to just say thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Andy. I really do appreciate you reaching out. It means a lot to me. And, and, uh, and yeah, I, I I'm always looking to get get the word out and 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 spread uh, spread my music. So I really do appreciate it. Right on. That's my conversation with Bill McKay. What a cool dude! He's a wonderful, wonderful musician. If you haven't gotten to see him perform live, do that when he comes uh, to a town near you, or if you're in Colorado, he's all over the place. So check it out. Um, one more time. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. And if you'd like to help out the podcast in a simple, non-monetary way, uh, just give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All right, thanks so much, and I'll talk to you next time. ¶¶